market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. For Douglas Ross to stand there and talk about losing grip of a party when he has been leader, the Conservatives have had the longest attempted coup in Scottish political history. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and Happy New Year. If it's not too late to say that, it probably is. Welcome to the Steamy, the Scotsman's politics podcast as we enter what promises to be a huge year for politics north and south of the border with the general election looming on the horizon and drawing ever closer. Will a Keir Starmer victory coincide with a Scottish Labour revival in Scotland? Will the SNP's grip on Scottish politics loosen as the party struggles to maintain the momentum it once took for granted? And what will happen to the Scottish Tories as we go into that general election? We'll just have to wait and see. I'm Alistair Grant, I'm the political editor of The Scotsman and I'm joined today, as usual, by Rachel Amory, The Scotsman's political correspondent. Do you have any predictions for the year ahead, Rachel? Well, I think we can probably, um, the polls do suggest it will be a Labour government by the end of the year. But when will that come? That's the big question now. When will it, when will it happen? Indeed, we could have 10, 10 or 11, well, 10 months of this, really. I think we probably might. <laughs> It's a painful, a painful thought. We're recording this as usual in a deserted Scottish Parliament committee room just after First Minister's questions on Thursday, where it's safe to say that one issue dominated above everything else, both Scottish Conservative leader Douglas Ross and Scottish Labour leader Anna Sarwar, both going in on the post office horizon scandal. It's obviously been something that's been catapulted back into the headlines on the back of the ITV drama, Mr. Bates versus Post Office. I have, I have seen it. <laughs> uh, I enjoyed it. I thought it was really good. I mean, we talked about this before. It was quite heavy handed as a drama, but completely understandable. You did feel quite emotionally manipulated, but again, quite happy to be manipulated by what is quite a, a, an astonishing story. I think it's really demonstrated the power of television and drama to kind of bring an issue back into the limelight and capture the public imagination and shape debate in the real world in a way that perhaps the the reporting and the kind of political scrutiny there's been in this hasn't been able to do as as successfully, I don't think. Yeah, it's a very complicated story. So I can see how sort of the more journalism side of it can get a bit complicated. So yeah, it brings, brings it sort of back to being the human story, doesn't it? Yeah. But w- what did we learn from, from First Minister's questions and the, and the kind of Questions put forward by Douglas Ross and Anna Sarwar. So there's a different legal system in England and Wales as there is in Scotland, but Humsey Safari in the week said that he's going to follow the same sort of pattern and the government's going to work together on this as well to make sure that anyone who is in Scotland does get exonerated and does get the compensation that they deserve. And the problem that we were trying to discuss today in FMQs is where did the Crown Office go wrong here? Because Douglas Ross and Anna Sarwar were saying that the Crown Office knew that the evidence that was being put to them was faulty. Potentially the convictions were then unsafe back in 2013. But continued for another two years to to convict people, sub-postmasters, using Horizon data. So that was what the main issue was today, as opposed to what's going to happen and what the government is going to do now. It's more looking back and sort of saying well, when did we actually know it was a problem and why was something not done sooner? Because it does seem kind of mad, especially once you've seen the, the, the drama series, as to why, if you knew this was an issue and a widespread issue, why wasn't something done slightly sooner than it was? Because it's been a long time now, it's been going on. 
Yeah, so I think the Crown Office is saying that they issued guidance from mm. 2013 onwards about the kind of concerns they had around Horizon. But as you say, prosecutions still went on. I think they kind of ceased effectively from 2015. Mm. But very much a feeling in Hollywood that questions need to be asked of the Crown Office. Um, there's calls from from mainly Douglas Ross, but also from Anna Sarwar to get the Lord Advocate Dorothy Bain up before MSPs to make a statement, to answer mm-hmm. questions on this. And the Crown Office has effectively said she's willing to do that. So I think we should fully expect that to happen I'd next week. I'd expect quite soon. I'd expect that to happen very soon, wouldn't it? I think there's also the sort of question is the data that was provided to the Crown Office did they just take that data at face value? Did they think that's a trusted source, the post office, so we'll just trust the data that comes from that? Is that potentially an issue here as well? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's just so many questions, there's so many things to get into, and there is this kind of complicated situation in Scotland that it was a Crown office pushing forward with these prosecutions, whereas it was obviously the post office in England and Wales, which I, I think also complicates what the Scottish government can do about it. You know, there's now very much a feeling that the people who are affected by this need to be exonerated. Mm-hmm. These convictions need to be overturned. We've got to do something about this. As I see a lot of the impetus from this has come, in fact, pretty much all of it has come in the back of this, of the television drama. There is a feeling that now something has to be done. It has to be done quickly. And I think the problem in Scotland is that it's, it's actually quite complicated to figure out how they would do that. The Scottish government seems to be saying that their preferred route is to kind of almost piggyback on the, off the back of the UK government legislation and just do a legislative consent motion in Scotland. But, I mean, maybe I'm totally wrong, but that would imply that the UK government would have to kind of somehow amend its own legislation to include Scotland, because you would think it probably wouldn't include Scotland at the moment, because they're obviously just Mm -hmm. legislating for England and Wales. Scotland has its own legal system. Well, there have been some some precedents of that in the past, being like sort of the exonerating of the... That those convicted of minors um, strikes offences in the 80s. And I think was, that was a pardon. Exactly. So like, how does different. that work? And does, is there anything that can be learned from things like that and brought into this at all? I'm not sure. I think that was one of the things that came up in the, the kind of briefing we have with the First Minister's spokesman after FMQs. And people were bringing up the, the minor strike, obviously the pardon for gay men as well. Mm. But I think the difference there that a pardon is basically, you know, an acceptance that that was against the law at the time. But now we are looking back in this and saying that was wrong or I suppose in the minor strike there's a sense that there was some injustice there whereas I think certainly what's been coming out of the UK government is that there's this idea that people would convictions would be overturned that they would because it was on false data yeah yeah that's that seems it's almost like a different process Mm. that would need to be done there and I think usually it's only the courts that can overturn something like that so I just it seems extremely complicated <laughs> as to how we're this actually is the problem isn't it it's, it's not as clear cut as it sounds yeah. but um, you just sort of hope that out of all of this and very quickly you get to a situation where it does all get resolved so you'd hope that it doesn't get dragged on because we, we know these things happen in politics that things go on for years and years and years something completely separate but think of the Covid inquiry we're expecting that to go on for years and so I think with something like this we have to make sure that it doesn't go on for years and it does get wrapped up very very quickly and I suppose from the point of view of those effects it already has been going on for far well, too exactly, long yes. um, but I, I think it'll be interesting to see and you would have thought that the UK government and the Scottish government will both want to coordinate on this and ensure, that there's, ensure mm-hmm. that there's you know, justice for people north and south of the border but I suppose on a more general question, do you think it's right that it's taken a TV programme to get the ball <laughs> rolling in this? You know, when it's been an issue, bubbling away in the background. I mean, I remember watching Panorama about this issue. It must have been a couple of years ago now. It certainly mm. feels like that. 
And at the time, you know, it's not that this wasn't known about, it was. Mm -hmm. It's just taken this to get action taken this quickly. I suppose, why is it that that's the thing that sparks everything? Is it it because of the number of people who watched it? Is it just because it's more accessible to people? It's a more accessible way of digesting that information, perhaps? So that's why it's gained this popularity. Is it just that the celebrity names that were in it, people think, oh, we know know Toby Jones or we know whoever else is in it, so we're going to watch this, and then they find out more about it. Is that what it is? But I also remember as well, um, I think it was um, Ian Hislop on Have I Got News For You a few years ago saying, did the post office not think at some point there's a problem that so many untrustworthy people are stealing from us? Did no one at any point think this surely can't be right. I mean, it's, it seems <laughs> extraordinary that they pushed ahead with that number yeah. of prosecutions without thinking maybe minute, something isn't here. quite right here. <laughs> I mean, it just seems completely mad. I mean, I suppose it is just a kind of sign of the fact that uh, a drama can connect with the human story in a way mm. that maybe it's harder for people to do when it comes to just kind of dry news reporting. Or Perhaps that's what it was, yeah. Because I've seen some commentary online about people saying that this didn't get mainstream media attention up until now, which I think is is wrong. You know, well, you said you just said there at the BBC Panorama I think documentary. There's been, there's been two that's, panoramas. There's been Radio Four documentary series on it. There's obviously been the Private Eye stories, mm. Computer Weekly, who obviously broke the story initially, and also I think some credit is due to the Daily Mail as well, which mm. has certainly been running stories in this for a long time. I remember reading about it in the Daily Mail, you know, as I say, quite a while ago. So. Well, they did get name-checked in the, in the, in the drama. <laughs> they did, yeah, with our reporter doorstepping Paula Venels as she went into the church. <laughs> but on to another issue that has been kind of bubbling away in the background, although also obviously not for nearly as long, the issue of XL bully dogs and the ban, effective ban that's been introduced in England and Wales at the beginning of this year. There was a kind of question mark as to whether the Scottish government was going to follow suit. It then seemed like they weren't. You know, as late as Friday last week, Hamza Yusuf was telling journalists that he didn't think there needed to be a ban because Scotland already has a strict regime in place. We're now six days down the line from that and the position seems to have reversed Mm. and the Scottish Government is going to mirror England and Wales and effectively ban XL bully dogs um, by essentially mirroring the legislation that's been introduced down there. There's going to be a ministerial statement next week, but Hamza Yusuf and FMQs has sort of spoilt the ending of that. We know what it's going to say. I mean, I suppose just first off, what what kind of problems do you see this creating in terms of timelines? And It's a very quick time frame. Well, certainly the, the ban in England and Wales is very, very quick. The legislation I think came in the 31st of December. And I think yeah. if you've got one of these dogs and you, you, you want to get a licence for them, you've only got until the 1st of February to do that. It's only a month. And so if you're somebody who has one of these dogs it's not long that you've got to try and sort of sort the paperwork out or decide what's going to happen to the dog and things like that. So as we said, that things sometimes take too too long in politics, perhaps it's also gone too quickly. So it'll be interesting to see if Scotland will go as quickly. Are they going to say, yeah, you've only got a few weeks to sort this out? Especially because one of the reasons this has been been brought to attention is because there's this influx of these dogs coming to Scotland now. So will that affect the time scales at all as well? If there's now more dogs than previously thought? Yeah, you would have thought they'd have some kind of lag period because, as you say, we've not had as much time to prepare in Scotland and also there's been dogs brought over the border. I mean, I think the Scottish government's position in this is quite confusing because, you know, again, during that briefing we have after FMQs today, they were asked about it repeatedly, about the kind of rationale for why they've changed their mind. And effectively, their position seems to be that they don't actually have a problem with XL bully dogs as a breed, because the Scottish government's view is that it's 
you know, as they say, deeds not breeds. It's not really about breeds of dogs, mm. but it's about the sheer numbers coming over the border. But they're basing that seemingly on newspaper reports, which are obviously completely accurate as a <laughs> newspaper journalist. But there doesn't seem to be any actual concrete figures about this. And I, I suppose rationally, you would only have a problem with a large number of dogs coming over the border if you have a problem with the breed. You know, someone made the point during that briefing that if it was, I think, you know, Labradors or, you know, some kind of teacup-sized dog coming over the border, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be bothered about it. So they obviously do have a problem with the breed. That's an interesting point, actually. Yes, because it is certainly one that's definitely captured people's attention, though. Because I know that um, um, in the in the media tower, um, it's something we've been talking about all week amongst ourselves, isn't it? It really has just sort of captured people's attention. This one, because I think everyone's got some sort of thought on this one, whether they agree with it or not. Yeah. And I think it's just it's it's the fact that this has seemed so inevitable. You know, when these stories kind of hit the headlines, it just seemed inevitable the Scottish government was going to have to do something, that they were going to do some kind of U-turn. Last week when Hamza Yusuf was asked about this, it seemed inevitable that that line was not going to stand. Mm. Uh, and it's, you know, it has come to pass. And it just, I think there are question marks as to why they took so long to get here. And I think it'll be difficult, actually, when Siobhan Brown, the community safety minister in the Scottish government, stands up next week and makes a statement and kind of outlines her reasons as to why they're going down this route. Because... Not that long ago, she was sharing graphics and social media, you know, questioning whether XL bullies were a dangerous breed or whether that's a concept we should back. Are they still on our feed? I mean, I think so, unless she's deleted them. So <laughs> it just seems to be, they've got themselves into a bit of a mess over it. It's not clear why. I mean, obviously, you know, the SSPCA, animal welfare charities have raised concerns. It's completely legitimate to go through a consultation process. But when you had this ban coming in south of the border, it just seemed that you were going to have to do something. Yeah, and I think especially if this ban, which comes in on the 1st of February, although the restrictions are already in place as of the end of last year, if there is this gap then between that starting and whatever happens in Scotland starting, there is then potentially that window for more accelerated dogs to come over the border, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. So that's something that we have to consider when, whenever they make this statement next week. And I wanted to touch on as well, just quickly, that the kind of general election theme. We've obviously both been to events this week. Yes, it was not a quiet start to the year. I was at Hamza Yusuf on Monday doing a kind of independence-related event, talking about the industrial policy of uh, independent Scotland. You were at Scottish Labour. Yes, uh, just five miles down the road, actually. In uh, Glen. Yes, Father Glen Town Hall. <laughs> was that their official general election launch? Or was it? it was a New Year's speech, it was called, right, as okay. opposed to their official launch launch. But you could be forgiven for mistaking it as an official launch. It was very... Um, I feel like they were very sort of jubilant. It was very much riding on a high, I feel, on the good polling that they've had. Lots of cheers, lots of positivity in the room, I think. So they're definitely feeling quite confident, I think, at this point in the campaign. I think one of the main things they were trying to do is sort of trying to appeal to SNP voters and pro-independence voters and say, look, actually give us a chance instead at this election. So it'll be interesting to see if that's actually what those voters do. We did ask, um, myself and other journalists included, I mean, what, what exactly, what policies are you going to put forward to these voters to try and convince them? We're not going to get to know that until the party conference, which is next month. So details to how that's going to happen, not quite there as of yet, but definitely a, a positive atmosphere in the room on one day. And I'm going to be at uh, the SNP's general election launch. They the are calling one, it a general election one. launch tomorrow in a, well, Friday by the time you listen to this, in Glasgow, in the Oranmore. It'll be interesting to see what Hamza Yusuf has to say. Their message going ahead of that, they've put out their kind of trail already, very much focusing on, as they say, making Scotland Tory-free, 
targeting those six Tory seats. Mm. The SNP making the point that they're in second place in all six of those seats. They're the party, they would argue, best place to take on the Tories. It's very much kind of going head to head with Labour. It's an interesting one because I feel like it's, it's a good chance again for Hamza Yusuf to sort of establish himself as a different leader from Nicola Sturgeon. Trails that we've seen so far perhaps suggests that's not going to be the case here. It's going to be quite similar to what we've seen previously from former first ministers here. But as you said, targeting these Conservative seats, I can understand why you'd want to do that if you're looking to win as many seats as you can. But given how many seats Labour projected to win in Scotland, I think I'd be a bit more concerned about trying to hang on to the seats where Labour are in second place rather than trying to target the six seats that the Conservatives have right now. It's kind of what they're doing in a sense, and they're trying to shore up their their core vote. Mm -hmm. They're trying to kind of make sure that those people who they would see as their core vote come out of the general election and vote for them again, because they really need to kind of cling on to their seats. I mean, that's going to be the SNP's strategy. I think that's where this the kind of independence speech on Monday kind of fitted into this as well. And in some ways, preaching to the choir. Absolutely. Both sides of um, both um, Labour and SNP preaching to their own choirs here. But um, I don't know how you feel. Like I know that the polling has sort of put the SNP slightly down and down and down and down, Labour up and up and up and up until they're about 50-50. There's not really much between them now. And I feel like that's not changed for a wee while now in the polls. Do you think that's kind of plateaued? Is that kind of the sort of the natural way things are going to lie from now until the election, do you think? I think it's, I mean, I've given up making any <laughs> predictions in politics, to be honest, because I just don't think there's, uh, there's much point. But if you were looking at it from now, you would say... The main worry for the SNP is obviously Operation Branch Form, the police investigation mm. into the SNP's funding and finances, where that's going to go. They'll be hoping for some kind of resolution before the general election. Obviously, they'll be hoping for a certain kind of resolution, but we don't know at all where that will go. There's so many unknowns. I think the SNP's problem is that they're now just in this kind of narrative of decline, and it's quite hard to get out of that. So I think they, they need to kind of create the perception that they've got momentum behind them again. And I think Which that I think you're really seeing hard. now from the Labour Party. You're seeing yeah. a lot of momentum behind them and you can feel that they feel confident on the back of that. But I thought there was a really interesting, I mean, I am not shouldn't really point people to other publications <laughs> in a Scotsman <laughs> podcast. There's a really interesting story in the Financial Times actually a few weeks ago that was talking about the kind of presentation that had been done to, I think it was to senior Labour figures, about polling and basically trying to warn against any kind of sense of complacency and looking at elections where the polling and the kind of the pundits view and the the general perception in the political bubble has been proven to be completely wrong and essentially making the point that this far out from an election, sometimes the polling isn't always that helpful because people will tend to decide how they're going to vote much closer to it. So for example, someone answering a poll now might, in a kind of UK-wide basis, might answer it in a sense to kind of, you know, express their annoyance at the the current (laughs) incumbent UK government. But when it actually comes to the election, they have to look at the alternative and they have to decide whether Keir Starmer is someone they want to back. Yeah, I think polls at the moment, you know, things change and they might not necessarily be as accurate as they might be. That's a good point. I know that um, the very first election that I voted in was the, the independence referendum and I made up my mind the day before. Did you? Yes. <laughs> I know, I, I like watched all the debates and I read all the stuff and all the rest of it, I mean, but I only actually decided the day before. Yeah. So that's a good point to make. There'll be lots of people like me in that election who it will be 
way closer to the actual election day before they actually decide what they are going to do at the ballot box. And as you just said earlier on with the XL bully thing, so much changed in six days. Um, we are now potentially looking at 10 months. <laughs> so it's good. Yeah, it's a lot of things could change in that time. Yeah. I mean, certainly, don't get me wrong, certainly seems like Labour are going to be the next government. Keir Starmer is going to be the next Prime Minister. It certainly seems like Labour in Scotland will make gains. They'll have a, they'll have a good election. But uh, yeah, you can't, they can't be complacent about it and you can't predict politics <laughs> as we've discovered over the last decade or so. It's just pretty unpredictable. But from Holyrood to Westminster and the Scotsman's Westminster correspondent Alexander Brown with all the latest in London. Hello and welcome to the Westminster section of the podcast. My name is Alexander Brown and this week of course the Prime Minister announced that the victims of the post office scandal would be cleared. There will be legislation passed soon to offer blanket clearance for them as well as compensation. But away from those big headlines, I think what's really interesting about this week is the way that we can see the general election kickstarting and just how ugly it's going to be. Now, when we get stories, a lot of newspapers are given stories by the government or by contacts, you know, in, in other parties. That's obviously the nature of how things work. And sometimes stories are a bit darker, a bit more accusatory. And that's stuff that maybe the maybe a party doesn't want to run themselves because it's too dark, but they might pass it off. You know, we all get given these quite vicious attack lines and then it's on to us to decide whether to use them. The Sun this week went with one about Sakir Starmer's record as the head of the CPS, the Criminal Prosecution Service, and his campaigns to end the death penalty. Now, the Labour leader ended the death penalty in multiple countries for free, pro bono, because he thought it was the right thing to do. But they have tried to frame this as him being soft on crime and defending people who were killers. And admittedly, yes, he did defend people who were killers. That is not an untrue statement. But also when you're a lawyer and it's to stop the death penalty, it's kind of your job. And I think it was very noteworthy that that sort of story is being shared by Lee Anderson, who is still unbelievably the deputy chair of the Conservative Party. Another noteworthy thing and just how kind of ugly and going down this campaign is going to be can be seen uh, at PMQs, where... Sekir Starmer was talking about Rishi Sunak's wealth and his helicopter and his mansions and how he doesn't, you know, he doesn't get Britain. Suggesting he doesn't understand the struggle that people are going through. Responding to this, again, not quite from uh, main parties, but a Downing Street source. And also uh, Nadim Zawahi, former Tory cabinet minister who resigned over his taxes, said, hold on, this is a comment about Keir, about the prime minister not being British. This is, this is a dig that's beneath him and he should apologise. It's a dog whistle racist attack. Now, obviously, if you hear the exchange, it's very clear what the Labour leader is doing is pointing out that Rishi Sunak is basically a billionaire and out of touch with a common man. But we're at mudslinging territory. It's going to be really, really ugly. Uh, and given it's only January and the election might not be until November, it's going to be a lot of this. It's going to be a long and ugly year if we wait till then. Hopefully things will be nicer next week, but you know, oh no, Parliament's not being recalled and we're doing a military intervention, so I doubt it. And it's a Rwanda bill next week, so that's going to be pretty, pretty horrible. Until next time, thank you so much for listening. 
Thanks very much, Alex. And that's all we've got time for. Please tune in next week for another episode of The Steamy, where we'll be again talking about all the latest goings on in Scottish politics. In the meantime, if you sign up for The Steamy newsletter... Oh, please do, yes. ...that Rachel writes, it'll be sent into your inbox every weekday morning and you'll get all the kind of rundown of what's happening in Scottish politics and beyond. It's a, an essential read, Absolutely. I would say. But thanks very much. <laughs>